We've been talking about this through this series, what it looks like, a field guide for living in an insane world. And just as a quick recap of some of the things that we've talked about, we talked about foundationally that we have to begin with the knowledge or the reality that we belong to God. And that affects and changes so many of the different ways that we would approach thinking through our choices in our life and our relationships is I belong to God. That's fundamental and foundational. If you don't get that right, you won't get anything right. So that's the beginning place we talked about. And then we talked about unity. And one of the things that we have to think about for living in an insane world is how much tension and division and strife and conflict there is out there, but also in here. And what does it look like to fight for unity? And so if you've missed any of these, I would encourage you to go back because all of these things are relevant. They are timeless truths, but I feel like even in our day and age, so timely. And then we talked about last week how the world's values are hostile to God's values and how we can rest and rely in God's truth to help us as we are inundated with other values. Now, one of the things that we may not recognize about our world, about the culture around us, is how much it encourages pride. Maybe you do recognize that, maybe you don't, but we are constantly encouraged towards pride and self-focus. It's actually one of the values of our world and our culture. We may think of pride and humility, and of course pride's bad, but, but really, maybe even without always using that word, it is one of the things that is continually, constantly encouraged in us to be proud. I mean, think about it. We are impressed by greatness, right? We're impressed and want to be around the best of the best. If you've ever had an encounter with a celebrity, you probably didn't just go, meh. You were impressed. You, you felt maybe even in their presence this greatness. You probably told people about it. You probably, depending on how close you were, took a selfie or at least them in the background and be like, I'm kind of with them. Sometimes we even try to connect ourselves to someone famous. Oh, yeah, my cousin went to high school with them. So what does that even mean? It's just we want to have these degrees of closeness to greatness because we're impressed by it. We want to be near greatness. I, was, uh, I saw a, a preview come up for uh, some new show, I think on Hulu, and it was a handful of celebrities that are getting together and having dinner together. It was like, there's a show where you can watch other people having dinner together by yourself at home, but you can watch them having fun. But why would people do that? Why would that be interesting? Obviously, there's going to be some people, millions, I, I would guess, otherwise they wouldn't make a show about it, that would watch that. Why? Because we are attracted to and drawn to greatness and, and celebrity and wealth and influence and power such that I just want to see them having dinner together. I don't have any friends. I don't have any dinner, but I want to watch them having dinner. We're impressed by greatness. It's part of why even for Christians at times, we get so excited if someone says that they're a Christian, that's a celebrity. Or someone becomes a Christian or claims to be a Christian. And we're like, oh, yes, finally, someone powerful and famous and great. They're a Christian. Thank you. Kanye's a Christian. Oh, and now he also says he loves Hitler, right? So it's kind of like, well, all right, maybe we shouldn't be so impressed by celebrity and greatness. But we are inundated with that all the time. We're encouraged to value pride greatness and achievement. We were encouraged to want it. We're encouraged to see the problems in our life as a lack of pride in various ways. We're encouraged to see that the solution to your life would be if you had more pride, more self-words, more self-confidence, more self-worth, more self-focus, more self-care, more self-esteem, which is another word for essentially pride. 
We're encouraged that the problems in our life can be solved with greater and greater amounts of pride. Ads are constantly given to us, telling us how much we're worth and how valuable we are and how much you deserve that new car or you deserve that new place or that new whatever it is. You're worth it. Eat a burger or whatever, right? You're worth it. Buy this thing. We're sold with pride all the time. And so we often find ourselves wanting to be seen, wanting to get likes or hearts or shares, wanting to trust more in ourselves, rely more in ourselves, boast in ourselves, let other people see who we are. We're constantly encouraged towards that and find ourselves then in that place. And yet, pride is one of the most dangerous things to our life, spiritual health. I've shown you this quote before, but C.S. Lewis says it masterfully. He says, pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride, which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Pride is underneath everything else, and yet we live in a culture that is constantly urging us, encouraging us towards pride. So you can see how that's a a complicated situation. How do you navigate through that? If this is as bad as Mr. Lewis says it is, which it is, If it's as bad as that, if it's spiritual cancer and any other vice that you will ever have comes from the roots of pride, if that's true, and yet we live in an environment that is constantly encouraging and urging and influencing us towards pride, that's a dangerous place to be. Do you ever struggle with contentment? Being happy with the station that you are in life and who you are in life? Pride. Do you ever struggle with common sense? Pride. Do you ever struggle with love? Do you ever have any relational problems? Much of this comes from pride. And yet we are living in a place that says, more focus on you, more focus on you, more focus on you, more focus on you. That is pride. It's constantly pushed. And so we find ourselves feeling down. We find ourselves not having contentment. We find ourselves in relational strife. We find ourselves wanting what others have. We find ourselves self-righteous. We find ourselves defensive if somebody says something about us because that's poking at our pride or sense of self-worth. We find ourselves trying to find ways to have some reason to boast, look what I've done, or look what I know, or look who I know, some reason that we can say, look at me. How do we resist this? This is one of the things we need to have a field guide for, living in an insane world. This is the same thing that they were dealing with. They lived in a culture that even in some ways, with different language, more explicitly was telling them, it's all about pride. How do we resist that? How do we have a humility that gives us contentment and love and wisdom? How do we resist a culture of pride? So let me read this text to you, and then we'll look at three different questions we have to ask if we want to be able to resist pride. Here's what he says. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. And that doesn't mean your calling as in vocationally, but when someone became a Christian the call of God on them, to him. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, 
in order that as it is written, quoting from Jeremiah in the Old Testament, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Paul is writing to this church in the city of Corinth, trying to help them figure out all sorts of different issues. And one of the issues that is contaminating them is they are being influenced by this culture of pride and boasting and status and who you know and what you know and what you've done. They're being influenced by that culture around them. And he writes to help them, which helps us. And there's three questions we have to ask if we want to be able to resist a cultural influence of pride. The first is this, where was I? Where did I start? Where did I come from? Now, this is a common theme that when somebody forgets where they've come from, then they kind of become high and mighty or they forget their roots. They forget uh, the, the place that got them to where they are. And when they forget that, there's pride. That's a common theme that sometimes we will talk about even Outside of Christian circles, we'll say things like, don't forget where you come from. Don't forget what got you here. Sometimes uh, the powerful people will even, whether authentically or inauthentically, appeal to, I haven't forgotten where I've come from. Politicians will say things like, my daddy was a coal worker, and they'll appeal to, I, I, I know where I come from. I know my roots. The CEOs will say, I started when the very, you know, shop floor that you are. I started doing that. And they, they appeal to, yeah, I, I know where I come from. Because we know that we need to remember where we come from if we want to have any sense of humility. When we forget, we are tempted to think that it's always been like this, or of course I'm in this position, of course I'm in this place. And Paul knows that we can spiritually forget where we came from as well. And that if we do, pride is a very real danger that comes in. And that can happen in two different ways. It can happen where pride comes in, but you don't have the pride, and so you feel shame. You feel like, man, I should be in this place with all these other great people, and I'm not. So I feel discontent, or I feel low self-worth. Or it can come in having some sort of greatness, and since you've forgotten where you've come from, spiritually speaking, you boast about how awesome you are and how great you are, what you know and what you've done. Paul knows spiritually forgetting is a dangerous thing, and so he says, consider your calling. Consider means think about. Remember it. Take time to ponder where you came from, where were you. Consider it. This is true. So he goes through a list of different things, reminding them, not many of you were wise. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you had achieved a certain status by the world around you of wisdom. For us today, that's degrees, schools you went to, Certificates or trainings that you've received. Not many of you were powerful. This can be your, your wealth that gives you power. It can be your job and your position that gives you power. It can be your resources that you have that give you power that you've accumulated. It can be the influence you have, the position of authority you have that gives you power. And he says, not many of you had power. And not many of you came from a noble birth. I'm talking about their families. You, di you didn't come, your, your last name isn't Kennedy. Your last name it doesn't draw people to you. Your family status isn't this, like, oh, you, oh, I know them. That's awesome. He says, in fact, by the world's standards, you were foolish, you were dumb, you were weak, you were insignificant, despised, nothing. That might be insulting. Paul is saying, remember, this is, this is your calling. This is where you were. 
Now, he says not many of you, so some of them perhaps were. We know that there was wealthy and wise people in the church, influential people, business leaders. But he's saying not many of you were that. And he's not uh, writing this just poetically in some way. He's looking at his actual church and saying the reality is not many of you are that special. And isn't that true today? And I don't mean that as any insult, but I don't think any of you are famous. I don't think any of you own half of Denver. We had a Bronco come to the church once years ago, and I, I didn't know he was a Bronco. And uh, I was talking with him. I think I've shared this before, but I was talking with him and a group of people, and just kind of casual Denver conversation. Oh, yeah, what you know, leagues are you in? Oh, you know, I play pickleball, or I play, I don't think pickleball was a thing at that point, but I, I play uh, baseball. I'm in a softball league, and I asked him, do you do any sports? And he was like, yeah, I do football. And I was like, oh, cool, yeah, I like football a lot, you know. And, yeah, we're the same, me and you. Me and you, you know. And someone was like, he's, he plays for the Broncos. He was a starting, you know, offensive line. He's, I looked him up today. He's still in the NFL. <clears throat> um, he doesn't go here anymore. So, you know. And I don't think any of you are Broncos. If you, you don't look like Broncos. Not many of you are wise, powerful, noble birth. I don't think any of you come from royalty. Not many of you are that smart. No one's a Nobel Prize winner in here, right? I mean, it's, this is still true. Paul, Paul's not trying to be mean. He's just being honest and saying, look, think about your calling. You're really just, you might be considered foolish and weak and insignificant and even nothing, Sometimes people think that it's the great worth and value in us that God would say, I want you in my family. Even within Christian circles, sometimes you'll hear, you, you are so amazing that Jesus would die for you. You are so awesome. You are so great. The, the king of the universe would die for you. That's how amazing you are. But it misses the whole point. And it misses the whole power of what is actually true. Paul is saying the opposite of that. He's saying God's not impressed by the world's standards. God doesn't look at the people with these great PhDs and all this wisdom and go, wow. Or these people that own multiple homes and have great wealth and great power. God doesn't look at Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and go, wow, that's a lot of money. He doesn't do that. God doesn't look at these people that come from a great family lineage and go, wow, you can trace your line back to King so-and-so? That's amazing. And when I was a kid, we had this old family book that was on my great-grandpa's table. And supposedly, I don't know, I mean, it, this is pre-internet, but they had traced all these things. But I remember there was a picture, big old picture on one of the things. A lot of it was just text, but there was a big picture of J.C. freaking Penny. It's like, I'm related to J.C. Penny. <laughs> now, a lot of you don't even know who that is because I think it's gone out of business. But back in the day, like, I'm related to J.C. Penny. Wow. That's I come from a great line, <laughs> you know. But I remember being so proud as a kid, you know. I wanted to be able to walk in the store and just be like, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. I'm taking that. <clears throat> but God's not impressed by J.C. Penney. He's not impressed if you're related to whoever. God doesn't care. It doesn't impress him. It's not the great worth and value in us. Paul says, consider your calling. Consider your calling. If you belong to God's family, if you're a Christian, consider your calling. Consider the fact that you were called. Consider the fact that you were called. That should blow our minds. Paul is saying, if you feel on the outside at all, that doesn't mean anything. If you feel dumb, Maybe you don't just feel dumb. Maybe you are kind of dumb. And I, I don't mean that mean, but maybe your grades have never been that good. And 
didn't go to that many schools, or maybe you went to lots of schools, that's the problem. God doesn't care. Maybe you don't have much power. You don't have much wealth. God doesn't care. You don't, you don't have the, the, the family. Maybe your family is, is, was really messed up. I mean, most of my life I was raised by a single mom. I mean, maybe your family is messed up. That doesn't mean anything. He's saying, remember where you were when God called you. It had nothing to do with your wisdom and your greatness and your, your birth. And you, none of those things disqualify you from the love of God, the want of God, the care of God. If any of those things you've ever felt as, I don't fit in or, you know, who am I? Paul is saying, it doesn't matter. Maybe you just feel like nothing. Maybe you just feel insignificant. Paul says, so what? Consider your calling. When you remember that and that God wanted you, not the rich version of you, not the powerful version, the wise version, the better family version, the more significant version, the version of you that's done great things, not that version of you. He said he wanted you where you were. So consider your calling. When you remember that, it builds thankfulness. And it relativizes all those other things and our desires for them. Says, what God, that means nothing to God. Remember, where were you? If you want to be able to resist pride in a culture of pride, that's one of the things that we have to do. Where was I when God called me? And if you are rich and powerful and brilliant, he says, not many. So it doesn't mean that God doesn't want you. Remember where you were. And then also remember, what did he do? Sometimes we know where we came from, but it actually becomes a source of boasting because we feel like, yeah, look how far I've come. Look how much that I've done. Yes, I was nothing, but now I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. Look what I've done. Yeah, I, I'm the first one in my family to graduate college. Look how awesome I am. I, I came from dirt floor poverty, and now look what I've built. So sometimes when we know where we came from, it can actually be a source of pride because we look at how much we have accomplished, how much we've pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps, how much we've done to get to where we are. And that's not to discount hard work that you've put in or things that you've accomplished or done. Those are good things. But Paul says there can be a danger spiritually. Even if you remember where you came from, you have to also say, but yeah, what did he do that got me to where I am? What did he do for me? What has he done that got me here? If you're a Christian, you belong to him. Not because of anything special about you. He said, I want you. But that wasn't just an opportunity that he gave to you. And then look what I've done to be worthy of that opportunity. Or look what I've done to accept that opportunity. He did things for you. Paul says we have to remember, if you want to be able to resist a culture of pride... You have to be honest about where you were, but you also have to look at where you are and attribute it to what he has done. And he gives us at least two things that God has done. The first thing is he simply over and over again talks about how God chose you. God has chosen. God has chosen. It is from him. Calling even is similar to that language. Chosen. Three times. God has chosen and then closing with, it is from him. Why? Why you? It's not that we chose God. You're not where you are spiritually. You're not where you are as a Christian. You're not where you are because of your efforts, because of how smart you were that you figured it out, because of how committed you were in your search for truth, or because of how 
dedicated you were, how more holy you were. You're not like these people that they just can't get their life together, but I really focused on God. I really worked hard to to focus on him. That's not why you are where you are. It's because he chose you. He chose you. That's the emphasis all throughout the Bible, particularly here, but all throughout. He chose you. Again, that's an affront to our pride and our will and our ability and our efforts. He says, he chose you. How humbling is that? Why are you where you are? Not because of your efforts and your abilities, but because you've been chosen. You think about, uh, I don't know why this just popped into my head. Maybe this is something that God is going to speak to somebody in particular, but you think about like, or maybe it's just stupid, but you think about uh, Willy Wonka. And if you know the story, and I haven't seen the most recent movie, so I don't know if they follow this line or not, but the story is that they're, they're just, he's chosen. It's not because of anything great about him or special about him, but he gets the golden ticket. He's chosen to be able to be brought into the chocolate kingdom, Right? And he comes from low, humble state, but he's chosen. He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. He didn't work for it. He's just chosen. That's humbling. There's no thing that you did to make it so that God chose you. But if you're a Christian, he did. He chose you. That's why you are where you are. He chose you. And that eliminates so much of our pride if we consider it, as Paul says. That God said, I'm giving you grace. I'm bringing you into my family. I'm making you belong to me. You are mine, and I'm selecting you. This is different from the world's religions, which would say, if you want God or nirvana or ultimate reality, or heaven, or paradise, or different versions, if you want him, you need to do things to be able to get there. Christianity says he has done something for you to bring you to him. It's different, which either means it's completely stupid. How could it be so backwards from everything else that we know to be true? Or maybe it's not invented by humans, but comes from God? That's the right answer. That wasn't like a, who knows, maybe it's this. That was just rhetorical way to talk. <clears throat> when I say maybe, I don't mean, I don't know, maybe. Maybe any of this is true. I don't know. <clears throat> he chose you. The core of Christianity is not something that we do, but something that's been done for us which helps because what it means is if it wasn't because of these things that we belong to him, the, the wisdom and the strength and the power and the noble birth, if it wasn't because of those things that we were given access, then it can't be because of those things that we are denied either. It can't be because of those things that God turns his back on us. If those weren't the reasons that we got in, those aren't going to be the reasons that kick us out or keep us from him. He chose us. He made us belong to him, which gives us a stable identity. I'm not okay with God. I don't belong to God because of how much I know or because of how much I've been able to do or because of who I know or how much I've accomplished or where the family I have, but because he chose me. Well, that's stable. That's unshakable. God doesn't change his mind on who he's brought in. means those things don't become a source of pride for us. Well, of course I'm a Christian. Of course, because look at what I know and look how much I've studied and look what I've done. Those things don't become a source of pride or division. And they don't become a source of despair if we don't have them. Other people know more than you do. Other people have more power or status than you. It doesn't matter. 
So what did he do? First, he chose us, but it's not only the place he took us from and what he did that got us from there, his choice, but also what he gave to us. He chose us. That's the first thing he did. But also look at what he says that he gave to us or became for us, that Jesus, it's from him that you are in Christ, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, our sanctification and redemption. So what did he do? God chose you and God gave to you all of those things that we are really searching for and longing for and trying to build and either despair because we can't good enough or boast because we feel like we've achieved in some way. He became, Jesus became our righteousness, our sanctification and our redemption in him. Which means he became our righteousness means he became the reason that we are good with God. Righteousness is our right relationship with God and other people. We are called to righteousness. We are called to live righteously. But there's also a positional or objective righteousness, which means when God looks at you, he looks at the righteousness of Christ. That's called imputed or imparted righteousness. That when Jesus, when God the Father looks at you, he looks at the righteousness of Jesus because Jesus becomes your righteousness, your reason that you are good with God, your reason that when God looks at you, he has favor and delight and pleasure because you are in Christ. If you were perfectly righteous, do you think that God would say, ah, yes, he would. And you have that because of Jesus. The Father looks at you and sees the righteousness of Jesus. He became that for you. Do you think the Father was pleased with the righteousness of Jesus, the obedience of Jesus, the life of Jesus? He was. And that is given to you, which means he becomes your righteousness. So you can't boast or feel shame based on your righteousness subjectively but you look objectively at Jesus and what he's given to you. He became your righteousness, which means the penalty of sin is gone. You never have to worry where you stand with God. You never have to worry about what he thinks about you or where you are with him or if you're okay with him or if he's against you or if he's good with you this week because it's been a really righteous week. or it, you, you never have to worry about that. But he became your sanctification. Sanctification means you're set apart, that you are separate, made holy. And again, with sanctification, we think about, it's very similar, but we think about it in two different ways. We think about the ongoing progressive sanctification, which is that we are becoming more and more like Jesus, that we are gradually growing in righteousness. But we, there's also a once determinative sanctification that you have been separated, set apart, sanctified for God. You belong to him. Jesus became your sanctification, which means because you belong to him, you have been set apart for God. Because of him, you are made holy. Because of him, God says, you belong to me. Because of him, you will continually be changing. Because of him, you can have a confidence. I will continue to grow and change. He won't give up on me. He is my sanctification. It's not just that, do I have what it takes to continue to grow and change? He is my sanctification. Because he became sanctification for me, it is guaranteed that I will continue to grow and change. And he became our redemption. Redemption is language of freedom from slavery. Sometimes used in the actual slavery system, also used in the Old Testament to think about God's people who were slaves in Egypt and were redeemed, were freed. So he became our redemption means he became the one that freed you. Because of him, you are free. Because of him, you're no longer a slave to sin. Because of him, you are not a slave, you are a child. Because of him, you are not in bondage. Sin, Satan, death, 
does not have control and power over you. You've been freed from those things and belong to him. Which means objectively, those things cannot control you anymore and do not determine the course of your life. Subjectively, it means you can grow and change. They don't have the power that they once did because your identity is different. You have been redeemed in him. Now, all of those things come in him. That's important. It's from him, but it's also in him. It's from him that you are in Christ. That language, often called the doctrine of union with Christ, is used all throughout the New Testament, that we are in Christ. So redemption, sanctification, righteousness, other things the Bible talks about are all found in Christ. They're not just given by Christ. They are found in him, connected to him. That language is weird because we don't normally talk about being in another person. So to think about that, maybe think about a, a nice resort whether you're a beach person or a mountain person. <clears throat> go to a nice resort. And when you go in the resort, there's all sorts of great things. And if you can't afford to go to one, just take a lift to one and just go in it. Just be in there. Usually there's like free cookies and you know sometimes even free drinks. Beautiful fireplaces. That's the mountain ones. The beach ones just have a lot of tacos and stuff. But <clears throat> when you go in there, there's a bunch of benefits that you get to receive. And maybe you haven't had that experience. So maybe think about going to your grandparents' home if they, if they were uh, generous. If you had stingy grandparents, don't think about that. But I can't keep giving all sorts of... Maybe think about your uncle's home. Maybe think about your... I can't keep doing that. So maybe you went to your grandparents' home. And when you went into the home, there was fresh baked cookies. And there was all sorts of you know, great decorations. And there was all sorts of uh, things that they were trying to do because they loved you and cared for you. When you go into this place, there's these benefits that exist. When you go out of that place, they're not there anymore. So in Christ, there is righteousness and sanctification, wisdom, redemption in him. But we are so tempted to our own self-reliance. We all want righteousness. We all want to be good with God, to know that we're okay, that we're not a loser, to know we have some kind of identity and we're worth something. We all want that, but we're tempted to go get it by ourselves. Just stand outside the resort and try to get the cookies. We all want redemption, freedom. We all want sanctification. Most of us want to change and grow in various ways, but all of these are found in Christ, which means your own self-reliance, your own pride, is the thing that will keep you from experiencing all the benefits that are actually freely given. And that's true in a once-for-all reality, that if you are not a Christian, you long for these things. Maybe with different words that you put on them, but you long for these things. And he says, I want you to have them in me. But you have to give up the pursuit of them in other places and come to me. Come inside. There's fresh-baked cookies. And tacos. <laughs> it's true in a once for all, but it's also true in an ongoing sense that if you want to experience those things, don't be tempted to walk out the door and try to go get them now somewhere else. We're tempted to self-reliance. We're tempted to rejecting and ignoring God who gives freely what we long for. But we can't get it on our own. It also means, by the way, that these, these great gifts, these great things that he gives to us are only found in Christ. These are not found elsewhere. These are found in him. You rest, you receive, and you continually live in that place. 
if you are a Christian, this becomes your source of humility. What he has done for you. You remember, where was I? He grabbed me, though I wasn't anything that people recognized as special or valuable. That's where I was. Now I have redemption and sanctification and all these things because of what he did for me. When you remember those things, it gives you humility. It gives you joy. Something's been done for me. And then the final question is, why did he do it? Where was I? What did he do? Why did he do it? What was the intended reason or the intended effect? What was the reason that he did it and did it this way? Remember, here's the problem that Paul is speaking into. The problem that we're trying to address today. That we are drawn to the values of pride. In our culture, just as they were, we're drawn to the values of greatness and what you know and who you know and what you've done and where you've come from. We are drawn to that. We're influenced by it. We're persuaded by it constantly. Can't get away from it. And so we boast if we've been able to be successful or we have some level of discontent or shame or despair or guilt if we're not able And we might bounce back and forth. Why did he do what he did? The first reason is so that we would not boast. To shame the wise. To shame the strong. To bring to nothing. So that no one may boast in God's presence. That's the first reason he did what he did is so that we would have no reason to boast. If God said, you know what I value? Wisdom. And then we worked really hard to have wisdom, then we would say, I've got wisdom, and we'd have a reason to boast. But God says, none of that matters. None of that is what I value. None of that is why I chose you. And what you do have, you were given freely. So it strips away every reason to boast, to put ourselves above others, to feel self-righteous, to lack contentment, it strips away boasting, which strips away shame and discontent. It strips away pride. It says, this is why he did this, so no one may boast. But he also did it so that we would boast. He did it so that no one would boast, and he did it so that we would boast in him. In order that, we would boast in the Lord. Boasting is good just depends what you boast in. He wants us not to boast in ourselves, but to boast in him. What does it mean to boast? When we boast, such a weird word the more I say it, but when we boast, we look at something and say, because of this, I have joy. Or because of this, I have confidence. I know that I will make it. Why? Well, because I've saved up a lot of money, so I know I'm going to get through this. Or we say, I know I'm going to make it. Why? Because of what I know. I've studied a lot. I know I'm going to be able to make it through this. Or because of who I know. Yeah, it's going to be a hard season, but it's okay. I I know the best doctors. I, I have a rich uncle. Jeff Bezos is actually, you know, my long lost cousin. And he wrote me recently and said, anything you need. So I'm going to be okay. We boast because something we take joy in, we say, look what I've got. I have a new boat. We boast when we have something that will get us through something. Our wisdom, our abilities, who we know. We boast when we've accomplished something. We say, look at me. Boasting means, look, there's some greatness here. So what does it mean to boast in the Lord? What it means to boast in the Lord is when you're tempted or when you're thinking about why do you have confidence or why do you know you're okay or why do you know you're going to make it or what is it that gives your life joy? We say, I know him. I know what he's done for me. Why are you going to make it through this season of your life? 
You're not appealing to, I'm going to make it because, and now I boast in my wisdom because of what I know, what I have, or what I've done, or who I know. We say, I'm going to make it because I know him. I know that I can make it through this season in my life because look at him and he's for me. That's what it means to boast. I don't know that much, but I know him and he knows everything. I'm not that strong, but he's completely powerful. I don't know a lot of great famous people here, but I know him and he made all them. I might not come from a great family. That's not the reason that I know I'm going to make it. Our generations have always made it. Our ancestors have all, not because of that, but because him and I'm in his family. That's what it means to boast in him. I'm not boasting in my wealth. I'm not boasting in my knowledge. I'm not boasting in what I've done. I'm not boasting in my goodness. I'm not saying I'll I'll be able to do this because I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. I've learned the right way. I've got a good moral compass. God will bless me even because of the things I've done and how I've lived. It's because of him. That's what it means to boast in him. You see how amazing he is and see I'm a part of him. I've got a, I'm not a good person, but I've got a good savior. I'm not the wisest man, but I know the wisest one that exists. I'm not the most powerful. I'm not the, all of these things, but I've got him. So to boast in him means you see his greatness, his worth, his value, and you rejoice in it. And it's your confidence that you'll make it. And it's your delight. Look what I have. I've got him. That's what it means to boast in him. And that is the command that he gives to us. He's building all these different things of how we will resist, but he really gives us two commands in this passage, two things to do. The first is to consider your calling. Think about it. And I would encourage you even, hopefully you've thought about it a little bit here, but even as you go home to think about, actually think about where you came from and who you are and the fact that he wants you. But then he also says, consider your calling and then says, boast in the Lord. That's an action that we actually take. It means that's how we actually resist. When you are tempted towards pride, the way to resist that isn't to say, no, pride bad. The way to resist it is to boast in the Lord. You will boast. Let the one who boasts is implying we all will boast. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Use boasting in him as your resistance to the culture and the pride that is being influenced upon you. Boast. In him. When we boast in him, it means we're rejoicing in him actively when we're down. When we boast in him, it means when we're tempted, we're boasting as a form of resistance. When we're boasting in him, it means instead of pointing others to ourselves, we're, we're encouraging others to look at him. It means when we're trying to help other people, we're not even saying to them, you are awesome, you got this, you're great. We're helping them boast in the Lord and see how great he is and see how he's got this and he's for them. That's what it means to be a community that boasts in him together. Is that how you are resisting a culture? Are you resisting a culture of pride? And if so, is that how you are resisting a culture of pride? The world around us pushes pride upon us all the time, constantly, nonstop. Can't get away from it. You'll probably see, hear, or feel something today. And it's dangerous, deadly, spiritual cancer. How do we resist? How do we navigate through an insane world that's doing the very opposite of what we are called to and what will actually bring us joy and unity and peace and contentment? How do we resist? He says, consider your call. Remember where you were. Remember what he did. Remember why he did it. We're going to take a communion in just a moment. If you're a Christian, hopefully you got a little communion cup on the way in. 
Communion is a time that we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us, represented in the bread, and his, body, his blood was shed for us, represented in the juice. Communion is an act of boasting in the Lord. It's an act of saying, I need something outside of me. I need something that isn't just me to make it through life. I need something outside of me. And how good it is. How great it is. I am forgiven. I am redeemed. I am sanctified. I do have righteousness because of what he's done for me. It's a boast in him when you take communion. And so as you take communion, bring your heart to God. Confess sin. Confess pride. Confess confess self-focus and self-reliance. And rest on him. Thank him. And ask him to help you continue to live a life boasting in him. He gives freely to all of us. Doesn't matter how dumb you are, how powerful you are, how rich you are, what family you come from. He says, I want you. I've done something for you. Boast in me. Take communion when you are ready, and then we will sing a few songs in response to him. Let's be a community that resists pride and boasts in our great, humble, and yet great Savior. Father, thank you for your goodness to us, your love for us. Thank you that we have every reason to boast. When we look at ourselves, we don't have reason to boast. But when we look at you, we have every reason, every reason, Lord. So draw our hearts to worship you, to know you, to rest in you, to boast in you. In your name, Jesus, amen.